If we think about investing in this next generation of innovation, technology has to be the solution to some of the world's biggest problems, whether it be the macro problems that we face on income inequality, whether it be the climate change problems that we face. I mean, it goes on and on. That was Harry Stebbings. Harry is a wildly talented podcaster, investor, and content creator. He got his start in podcasting at a very young age at just 20 years old, and he became one of the youngest VCs in the world. His energy is key to his success, and you get excited by just talking with him. This energy carries through his podcast episodes, his short-form videos, and in today's interview. Today, Harry is the founder of 20 Minute VC, the world's largest independent venture capital podcast. In today's episode, Harry shares his thoughts on the future of content and his own strategy behind creating content for multiple social media platforms from LinkedIn to TikTok. He talks about how he learned to build a deep network and create relationships that last and what it means to bundle and unbundle businesses. This is Daniel Sachs, president and co-founder of AppDirect, and it's time to decode investing your time and energy to create something spectacular. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Today, I have Harry Stebbings with me. Harry, great to see you. It is lovely to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. So let's set the stage. The date was 2016, and a young Harry Stebbings is projected on the screen via Skype in the AppDirect boardroom. Not even 20 years old, he's calm, confident, and filled with curiosity and enthusiasm. With 75 episodes under his belt, he could already be considered a veteran podcaster. He's since interviewed everyone from Mark Cuban to the Chainsmokers to Reed Hoffman, and is now a prolific VC, once dubbed one of the youngest VCs. So... Harry, I want to go back to that 2016 day. I remember being blown away by your energy and would love to just hear like how it all got started. Yeah, I mean, you say about being blown away by my energy. You know what? It is all about the energy that you bring and the tone that you set in every meeting. I want this to be the best meeting of your day. And the next meeting I have, I want it to be the best meeting of their day. And if you go into every meeting saying, I want this to be that person's best meeting, and I'm going to fucking bring it, then that's a really great kind of motto to live by. And it makes days a lot more fun. And so, yeah, how did it all get started? Honestly, I watched a movie. I watched a social network. I saw Peter Thiel invest in Facebook with Clarion Capital as hedge fund. And I was like, wow, venture capital looks like my life's work. And I read the early venture bloggers. This was, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So this was very early in kind of venture marketing. This was Brad Feld, Roger Ehrenberg, Mark Suster, David Hornick, all the kind of OG VC writers. And then when I was 18... I was faced with the dreaded prospect of going to law school. I didn't want to go because I didn't like reading things that were longer than a tweet. And so law would have been a challenge. And so I went upstairs to my bedroom at home. I was still living at home. I was like 17, 18. And I thought, well, there's this generation of great VCs and only Mark Andreessen's on the Tim Ferriss show. Why don't I interview them? And then one of them will give me a job. And so I started from there. 
And every great business has a flywheel. And you can deliberately construct flywheels in your business to make it easier over time. And I always ask this with every investment, which is that how does this business get easier to run over time? So with every show that I did, I would say to you, Daniel, I love this episode. Can you name three people that you think would be fantastic for the show? And remember, I didn't know anyone. And so if I get into very high quality founder networks like you, then you'll say, oh, actually, these three people. And generally, you refer very high quality founders. And so that's how we built the flywheel. And then you get social validity, and it really snowballs from there. You make it sound so easy. But one thing that it sounds like is if I was an entrepreneur before it was cool, you were totally a podcaster before it was cool. And you chose podcasting as a medium. But what drove that flywheel? Was it just you threw up the episode with no promotion or did you have a promotion strategy? Well, number one, the biggest mistake that everyone makes with content is they go, oh, podcasting's hot. Let's do a podcast. Or, oh, TikTok's hot. Let's do TikTok. No, I'm just shit at writing. <laughs> and I love talking. And I love tone. And I love storytelling. And the way I tell stories is with my voice, not my pen. <laughs> or yeah, like choose the platform that's most authentic to you. That's the most crucial thing. So why podcasting? Because it was most authentic to me. It does show the importance of market timing. I was very lucky in when I started it because there were so few. In terms of the flywheel of distribution at the beginning, you know what? Defensibility is a load of shit. <laughs> I'm really just going for it now. But defensibility is crap because defensibility is built over time in the processes that you build, in the people that you hire, in the customers that you acquire. Day one, honestly, Daniel, unless you are doing biotech or deep cyber or anything that's very, very, very domain specific, really so, there's very little defensible. And so really for me, I iterated and improved my process over time. You know, bluntly, when I had you on the show, Daniel, I think I read articles about you and read your Twitter. And that's how I constructed the schedule. Now, we have two full-time people that do 10 to 15 references with every board member you have, with your exec team, with your cap table. Fuck, there's nothing I don't know about you by the time I get in that room with you. So like, the processes change. And that is where defensibility lies. And so I would say, honestly, in terms of the release, it's changed over time. At the beginning, it was, Daniel, can you please share the show? Now, when you want content distribution, but like you have to think, who is incentivized to share this piece of content? And there's many more than you think. Your whole exact team is incentivized to share your episode. They want a pay rise. They want a promotion. They want you to think that they're great. And so they're going to share the show. And then, you know, you have to be that channel specific. Like you, I think, are probably much bigger on LinkedIn, I'm guessing, than you are on Twitter. So I'm not going to ask you to share it on Twitter. I'm going to make it as simple as possible for you. And we do the 595. And the 595 is, hi, Daniel. Hope you and the kids are well. Blah, blah, blah. Super nice personal. Paste which is the episode, the links, blah, 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 with a very simple ask. Make it as short as possible, but that's like the 90. And then the five, P.S. Daniel, bro, love you to come have mojitos with me in London. Done. You think I've written that whole email? Two fives I've done. Middle I didn't do. I can bust out 40, 45 in 60 minutes. Well, except the mojito invite for sure. That would get me to share anything. I mean, there you go. Uh, <laughs> it normally works. 
And so, you know, that's how we've evolved over time. And yeah, I can go way more into it, but that's how it is now. What are some of the top lessons you've learned from speaking to over 3,000 VCs and entrepreneurs? <laughs> There's ways that you can gain power in a conversation. As I've mentioned previously, Daniel, <laughs> what a brilliant way to make you feel small. That instantly makes an interviewer go, oh shit, I didn't do my work because they've clearly discussed it before. Another way to gain power in conversation. Well, you know, Daniel, I'm really not very good at analysis, but when it comes to storytelling, I think that I, you know, really hold my ground. Straight away, start with the negative, move to the positive. Instantly gives you credibility on your positive. Another one, what I've learned is X, Y, and Z. When you say the what I have learned, it feels to the audience like you have ruminated on your thoughts, done a critical analysis on what you've learned, and then you've summarized it. It makes it much more consumable. I think the best interviews are also the combination of art and science. And so the art is the story. It's the resonance. It's bringing the listener in and making them feel a part of that situation. And then there's the science. The science is theory. It's, you know what? There are three things that I learned when it comes to valuations. And a brilliant example of this is Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley from Benchmark, when he was on my podcast, said about Larry and Sergey from Google coming into the Benchmark office and how the Benchmark team interacted with them and that meeting with them. And then he said about the valuation framework that he learned as a result, the perfect combination, taking you into the world and meeting of Google and Benchmark, and then his lessons from it, science and art. That's what makes the best shows to me. And so I think the best do that. The other thing is like structure your thoughts, like terrible interviewers like or interviewees like me just ramble, but really good ones actually structure their thoughts. They say, you know what? There are three important things here. Number one, number two, and number three. Structuring thoughts allows the audience to really take it away in a much more packaged kind of environment that is more consumable. And then I'd say the final thing is just like, actually, it's my job to make you feel safe as an interviewer. And it's the same as being an investor. I'm an investor for a living as well now. And the beginning of each interview with a guest or investor meeting with a founder, I have three to five minutes where I have to make you, Daniel, feel safe, feel like you can bring me anything in a completely non-judgmental environment where you can say anything and it is a safe space. I've lost my head of sales. We missed last quarter and I am nervous. I don't know what to do. Great. Okay. We can work with that. That's a real conversation. How do you do that? You got to share some hard elements. You know what? I'm actually really struggling right now. My mother has multiple cirrhosis and I find that, you know, quite tough and she's not always great. Oh, oh, I'm really sorry. And I'm not using my mother in like a bad way, but it's just being authentic. None of us are fucking great all the time. You never know what someone's going through. And so be kind. And I just choose to be more open because life's a lot better that way. <laughs> So as you learn these techniques and you have more resources to do research and to get there, do you think the quality of the content is what drives more success and drives more flywheel? Or do you think the quality was just as good on your 75th episode as your 3000th? Listen, I think the 75th episode with Daniel Sachs was fucking brilliant. Fuck yeah. Um, I think the surrounding 400, 500 were absolute dog shit. <laughs> yeah, they were not good. I was a terrible interviewer. We didn't do the depth of research that we did, but like do now. Were they good? 
Yeah, for indexing a generation of investors, yeah, they did their job. They were perfectly good. Are they what they are now? Hell no. Now, you know, I'm preparing for a show with Barry, the CEO of Peloton. We've done 18 references. I know every great story about Barry. The tales that we're going to get and the lessons that we're going to get out of that are second to none. No one has got these before because no one's done this amount of work. We have 37 pages of notes. Like, it is insane. And so I would say that the shows are much better now because of all the things we've discussed. I would say also we're multi-channel now in a way that we are bluntly, I think, best in the industry. I'm arrogant on this, but I can be because it's my team and not me. I know that no one has a TikTok channel compared to us. TikTok is a science and we've mastered it. My team has mastered it. You know, we now get north of 10 million views a month at least. So I'd say multi-channel in a way that, you know, no one else has quite mastered like we have, which is really, really important. And then I would also say guests. At the end of the day, content is a weird business where it gets easier over time. It's like self-fulfilling. The bigger guests you get, the bigger guests you get, the more audience you get, the bigger guests you get. And it kind of starts the flywheel of success. You know, would I have got Daniel Ack from Spotify, Barry from Peloton five years ago? No. And so, you know, it gets easier in terms of attaining those guests. I think the thing I would say is, this is eight years, Daniel. Every single weekend for eight years, I've done this Saturday and Sunday, nine till six, give or take. Like, and for the first two years, I made no money. I wasn't doing it to make money. But like, it is just fucking brutal. And so for all execs out there thinking, oh, I'm going to do content, I'm going to do content. Great. You should, by the way. But you need to have a very long-term mindset. And the biggest mistake that execs make is they put 50K on the table and say, hey, test it for six months. <laughs> You're not going to find shit out in six months. Another big mistake they make, you've got to be super segmented. You have to be very structured. So like, if I was thinking about doing a new show today, you know, I love enterprise, but I think the big challenge is the chasm between enterprise and product-like growth. I think specifically focusing on stories and lessons in that chasm would be fascinating. Now, I'm sure there's probably 10,000 listeners that would love that, love that. If there's 10,000, there's probably 20,000. If there's 20,000, we can probably do ancillary shows, which expand that to 100,000. Now we've got a real fucking business. So start very niche and move wider. I love that insight. So I want to deep dive and decode concepts of content. So one of the things that has come up recently is that some of these content powerhouses, yourself included, or Mr. Beast, you know, they are the future SaaS companies, right? huge reach. They can promote product really efficiently, not a lot of overhead and cost in many of them. What's your view on the future of content and content creators? And how do you think that this economy and this current economic transition will strengthen that or weaken it? It's a very good question. And I don't have an answer because we have two opposing ideas. When we think about your audience, you know, generative AI genuinely has the chance to make all art and sport in many ways, completely obsolete from a human perspective, which is incredibly worrying and poses a question of, is this even a world that one wants to live in where all forms of art are replaced by computers? And so that is interesting and concerning. I think well, the thing that's very different, though, is 
nuance. And so far, generative AI does not understand nuance by any means. What it takes to win on LinkedIn is very different to what it takes to win on TikTok. TikTok is anecdotes, it's stories, it's how I lost a billion dollars investing in X company. LinkedIn is very structured. These are the three things to look for in a CFO. These are my two biggest mistakes when I go hiring. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's very structured, strategic, more on the story based of TikTok. So I think like generative AI has the ability to bluntly change this space in a way that I don't think any of us anticipate, which I think about intensely. I try every single fucking tool that I can. I haven't managed to try them, like you know, find one that actually is up to scratch for us to even use yet. So there's some hope there. <laughs> I think there's a real concentration of power. You know, Mr. Beast is obviously an incredible display of that and a phenomenal mind. I have huge, huge respect for Mr. Beast. But the truth is with content, it's a horrible game. <laughs> I'm lucky. You know, we get many millions of downloads, but we're in the top 1% and it's taken years to do. But 99% make no money and it's a shit game to be in, which is very much like every other business, really, to be honest. But I think that concentration of power continues. I think what's so interesting, though, is TikTok decouples, and I may be getting too deep here, but TikTok decouples likes from followers. And what I mean by that is, on Twitter, if you have 100 million followers, you will absolutely get a very high engagement rate. On TikTok, you can absolutely go viral with 50 followers. It's much more uncorrelated, which allows for this true democratization of reach of content in a way that I think is quite exciting. And you know, my biggest frustration with the podcast is for some of my guests are fucking amazing, but their name is unknown. And some of my guests are very known and they are not that amazing. And everyone listens to them, even though it's not that amazing. And what I love about TikTok is it brings the story front and center, not the person in many ways. And so it can be a real discovery mechanism for content that doesn't quite make it in many ways. But now we have 28% of our viewers' downloads through TikTok. 28% of net new subscribers come through TikTok. It's insane. Biggest misconception about TikTok, by the way, which the audience will go, wow, it is not just for Gen Zs or millennials. Our average age is between 35 and 50. I promise you, it's a very, very powerful demographic now on TikTok. So... Yeah, it's important. The other thing is like short form video. You can use it on Instagram. You can use it on YouTube Shorts. Everyone should be engaging with this because it is a very transferable media asset that should be leveraged. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> but what do you think the future of content is? Are these content creators going to be the ones that can create the future businesses because they have arbitrage because they have such a big audience to sell and promote things? Yeah, I don't believe in the creator economy, so to speak. The creator economy doesn't work in many ways because 99% of gains accrue to 1% of people. And so fundamentally, there isn't the budget from 99% of people to spend on you know, this suite of tools, which actually probably costs a combination of $300 to $500 a month in a lot of cases. So I don't fundamentally believe in that in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I see further concentration of power amongst the current crop. And... I think, you know, you have to constantly be insecure. I'm forever on my toes. You know, you look at new up-and-comers who come, and some are kicking my ass. And that's fine. You know, they're doing different things. But you always need to be aware that momentum is transient, right? And that when you're hot, you have to double down. 
forget everything else in the world exists and go all in. Because there's a time when you're not going to be hot. And when you're not hot, you need to be so powerful and so high that it doesn't actually matter. And so I kind of constantly live by that. You spoke to the benefit of TikTok and their algorithm for discovery and virality. What's the next social channel that's going to emerge and what's it going to be? I think, honestly, TikTok's got so much room to run. And I don't think there's going to be a new one anytime soon. Like When we look at the next wave of consumer social, the next wave of consumer social actually is in reconnecting with people. It's kind of interesting as we see a movement away from the social graph towards a media recommendations engine, which is basically TikTok. As you see that, you see, I think, this craving for human connection in a different way. I think Be Real has shown that. You know, I was an early investor in Be Real, and the fundamental thesis there was we all want a more authentic way to connect with our friends. And yeah, you can see me now where, I mean, I look like shit, but I look a lot better than you know I do at 7 a.m. But that's the point of Be Real. I see Daniel in a way that we haven't seen each other before, and it's way more authentic. I think Gas and you know Slay in Europe are very similar to that in terms of connecting with friends in different ways. So I don't think like content discovery and consumption is actually going to shift away from the core platforms. I just think the ways we connect with the people around us are going to become more and more unbundled. At the end of the day, business is just a game of bundling and unbundling, if you think about it. And I think we're going to see a wave of unbundling in consumer social. Let's decode that. So business is just about bundling and unbundling. Mm. Go deeper. I mean, like if you look at banking, you know, banking is a business of bundling. Yeah, hey, we've got your core current account. Fuck it. Let's put in your student loans. Let's put in your mortgages. Let's put in, you name whatever financial product we want to put in. It's a game of bundling. Now, the interesting thing that happens with bundling is generally you see a reduction in quality with the bundling of products. So what I find the most interesting when I'm analyzing businesses is, well, for anyone that wants to start a business or wants a business idea, look at an incumbent, try and understand an underserved portion of their customer base, where it's not the core customer segment, understand why they are being underserved, and then provide only that product in a much, much better way. A great example of this, let's go to banking again, would be kind of migrant workers and sending remittance payments back to their core countries of origin. Okay, It's not generally a core like, element of any bank's business, but for that person, and it's quite a large audience, it is a huge, huge part of their customer service and experience. Just serve them. Deliver a way better experience in that focus niche. And then again, you can expand out from there. But going back to the bundling and unbundling, the banks is the bundling, creating all those products in one. And then I think, you know, you then go back to a generation of unbundling where you go, oh, this is not a great service. We can do it better. Just do that. Unbundling. That's how I think about it. And it rides in cycles. It, it rides in cycles, man. Everything's in fucking cycles. You know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme is the brilliant saying. Speaking of cycles, you know, valuations are down 80% in a lot of public companies. You know, the private markets are turbulence. There's geopolitical issues. Interest rates are rising. What's your view on the economy and the future of startups as we know it? <laughs> wow, we're all fucked. No, I'm joking. I think, you know, the next six to 12 months will probably be the worst times to be investing. It's in our jobs as venture investors to say that now's the best time to be investing. Of course, now's the best time to be investing. It's complete crap. 
It's not the best time to be investing now. I'll break down why. Pre-seed and seed, you have all the large multi-stage players going earlier and earlier. They still need to deploy in capital, but they want to minimize capital exposure. So they're doing pre-seed and seed. And what the trouble is, is so they're increasing supply of capital, but that supply of capital is price insensitive more. And so we're seeing this price inflation at the seed and pre-seed. Series A and B, horrible place to be right now. All the best companies are getting internal rounds done by their existings. So anyone raising 99% of the time is actually not very good, doesn't have the support of their existings. And generally, it's not a place where you want to invest. Like, we both know that gains are got from the 1% of huge, huge winners. So it's not a great place to be right now with Series A and B. And then Series C and D, fuck, you're seeing price inflation again. Why? Because the multi-stage players are going, we'd rather have a 3x and secure than a 10x less secure. And so they all flocking to the same obviously brilliant companies to increase supply of capital there for the same amount of companies. And so you're seeing price inflation. And they're happy to have the price inflation because it's a more secure exit environment there than taking a 10x bet here and having less security. And so across the board, it's not that great to be investing right now. That said, and I don't mean to get miserable here, we are in a dire state of the world. Like, I don't think anyone understands quite how fucked we are. Now, I don't mean that negatively. I mean that almost positively. Technology is our only salvation for most of the world's problems, which in many cases have not been worse, like have not been as challenging as they are now. And so if we think about like investing in this next generation of innovation, technology has to be the solution to some of the world's biggest problems, whether it be the macro problems that we face on income inequality, whether it be the climate change problems that we face. I mean, it goes on and on. So I think actually I'm kind of short-term very negative. Six to 12 months is not a good time to be investing. The best investors always invest though. Like I'm never not investing. Best investors always invest, but you can change temperament. And then I think over the next five to 10 years, it'll be the best period to be investing. I think you know, generative AI and AI more broadly will fundamentally transform every industry in the next five to 10 years. And I'm giving a breath on that because... I don't know between those, but I think there's so much room to run there bluntly. And for us as investors, that will be probably one of the most lucrative waves to invest against. And so that's how I would look at it. Well, we've got to have you back to talk about generative AI. <laughs> one thing that I want to conclude on is just finding success at such a young age and being in the public light. That definitely has an impact on your psychology, on your ego, on the way you think inside. What are your thoughts on success at a young age? very hard. One, you're going to get a lot of haters. And the truth is, if you stick your head above the parapet, you have to be willing to accept that. <laughs> you know, you can say, oh, I don't want haters, Daniel. I don't want haters. Well, you know what? You don't have to do your fucking podcast then. You don't have to tweet, but you do. And so accept it and move on. This is the life I chose. So I don't have a right to moan or complain about the haters. I get a lot of love too. That's wonderful. I like that. I'm egotistical and insecure like everyone else. <laughs> I think the other thing I would say is you need to surround yourself with people who shit on you and say you're not great and you have many flaws and this was not okay and this was not okay. I have great mentors around me who really give me the hard truth and give me the brutal truth. And you need that because, you know, otherwise you can believe that you're in hype and people will tell you you're brilliant and you're the next great thing and you're the next great thing. 
you know what? You're probably not. Like, don't believe the hype. You're only as good as your last deal. You're only as good as your last interview. Support yourself with people who will absolutely tell you the truth. <laughs> and then also, like, I think the big thing I see young people make is they focus on network breadth. Useless. I don't want a broad network. I want a deep network. I want five people who will swim across oceans for me, as I would do for them. Focus on the like, strength of connections, not like the amount of connections you have. And then I'd just say, like, you know, on decision making, it's very easy to say yes to everything. And actually, you need to say no a lot sooner. And I wish I knew that. And someone told me once a very good one, which is, you know, you're never wrong to do the right thing. And I always think about that. And it's like, is this the right thing? could be firing someone. It could be ending a contract with a customer. Is this fundamentally the right thing? Yes. I'm not wrong to do it. I think about that one a lot. Sorry. And then another one I think about too is like, you know, when you were young, everything is extreme. Oh my God, this happened and this happened. You know what? Just remembering that this too shall pass and it will be okay. And actually, greatness and success is in how you respond to failure not the failure itself. Can you conclude with the parable of the businessman and the fisherman? Yeah, it's a very good one that changed much of how I live my life, actually, which is fundamentally, there is a businessman and there is a fisherman. And the fisherman is lying on the beach and he has a beer and he has a cigarette and he's looking out at this beautiful sea. And the businessman comes up to the fisherman and says, why are you lying on the beach? If you were out on the sea, you could be fishing and making more money, catching more fish. And he says... Mm, and then what? And the businessman goes, and then you could hire more people, catch more fish, and make more money. And the fisherman goes, hmm, and then what? He goes, and then you could take the company public and make lots of money, and then you could lie on the beach and you know, have a cigarette and have a beer. And he goes, what the fuck am I doing now then? And I think that is the most important thing, which is to your question, if I had all the money in the world, I wouldn't change anything about the way that I've spent my day today. I'm very happy having this conversation with you. I can't wait to have dinner with my mother this evening. I think that is content. And I think people conflate happiness and joy. Joy is short term. Joy is yes, right now. Woohoo. Happiness is actually, there isn't any other way that I would choose to spend this day. I'm going to go for a walk later in the evening with my brother. That'll be lovely. I've got an amazing board meeting later. Fantastic. That's happiness. That's it. And that's what it's all about. Woke up this morning, went for a hike with my wife, sat down with Harry Stebbings. And this was by far the best meeting of the day, if not the week, <laughs> year, or decades. So thank you for bringing it, as you always do, your energy, your enthusiasm. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with the viewers. And fucking great to see you, mate. Man, it is so good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.